overview of Revelation 19 and 20. And I'm going to do something unusual that I would, well, I hardly ever do it, or maybe never. Um, I'm going to uh, examine not just these controversial book, um, verses in the Bible, but examine them without trying to prove my point. And then in the weeks to come, we'll take a verse-by-verse verse look at these things and try to prove this broad outline that I give you. So if you hear something tonight and you disagree with it, uh, that's not a problem. You don't have to believe it just because I said it. Uh, we're going to try to prove these things in the weeks to come. And so that, I thought that would be the best way to do it. Otherwise, it'll be slow and we'll lose our place. And uh, it was profitable for me to write it all down, what I th think was happening. And so I hope that'll be profitable for you too. So we're going to start in chapter 16. We're not going to review 17 and 18. We were there a long time. And we're only going to do half of 19, Armageddon. But we really, if we want to do Armageddon, need to start back at chapter 16. So please turn to chapter 16, and we'll look at verses 12 through 14 first. This is the final battle and the end of human history on earth. And you say, well, how could that possibly be the final battle and the end of human history on earth? We've got all these chapters to go. As I understand it, what we see from this point on is a panoramic view. Um, I, I know that movies do this occasionally. I couldn't think of a movie that does it, um, so I can't tell you one, but I know that some good directors have done this. You have an incident happen, and then they look at it from this perspective, and then they look at it from this perspective, then they look at it from that perspective, and they look at it from, from here, they look at it from there, and they've surrounded the whole thing. And it's not like it happened five different times. That, that wasn't the case. It's five different ways of looking at it. And with that being the case, uh, we deal with Babylon. We deal with the beast. We deal with the false prophet. And we deal with the dragon. Okay? And really, we've been dealing with all of those things since chapter 12. Chapter 12 introduced the dragon which is Satan. We know absolutely to be true because it tells us that it is. And then chapter 13 introduced the beast and the false prophet. Those are controversial, but I've maintained that the beast is anti-Christian government, especially in persecution. And the false prophet is anti-Christian religion, which is every religion except the true religion of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have anti-Christian government, we have anti-Christian um, religion, and Babylon is where you and I live. And everybody else in the world too. Because it's the world system, it's anti-Christian society, lifestyle, worldview, values is Babylon. What we're going to see is a picture of all four of these destroyed. But they're all destroyed at the same time. Doesn't look like it, you know. It actually appears. But, but let's remember, every time we see and again or and another, I'm talking about visions, it's talking about another vision. It says and then. It's another vision. It's another vision of the same thing that's happening. That's what it is. It's not, okay, now that's over with. Babylon got destroyed. 
Now we've got to destroy the beast and the false prophet. Okay, we destroyed them. Now we've got to destroy the dra dragon. Really, that's the way it's usually read chronologically, because that's what we're used to doing. But you can't do that, and it would make no sense to do that. If you really look at it, and it creates a lot of problems. Okay, so enough about that. Uh, let me just read you chapter 16, verse 12. The sixth angel poured out his bowl. These are the bowl judgments, the sixth and seventh, the great finale. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates. Its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. And we really ought to think about that with speech, not literal frogs coming out like that. For they are demonic spirits. There we go. Now we know what they are. Performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Okay, so now we've lined ourselves up for Armageddon. And now here's the second coming. Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. So there we go. We've actually taken care of that, you know. And um, what we have is um, all of those things taking place there. Now, I think we need to go into chapter 17. Let me see here. Um, to, to keep uh, some, some sense here. Oh, no. No, we can just keep going here. Okay, verse 16, uh, verse 17. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. Now, if we're going to take things literally, I guess we'd have to say it's done, right? That's what it says. But okay, so let's do that. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as had never been uh, since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into two, three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of wine of the fury of his wrath, and every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And you go, well, that sounds like the end of the world, and it is. Verse 21 doesn't. Okay. Verse 21 doesn't. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. And that really troubled me because I said, well, there's the end of the world. It, there it is. I said, no, well, I believe it is. I think the hailstones are just another sign of judgment and another sign that we're going into another vision. So I think we've seen the end of the world. And what we actually have seen is the end of Babylon, the great city, uh, which is called the great whore oftentimes too. Um, and what, what happened as we look at that is that, um, you know, we've just seen the destruction of Babylon. And now we're going to go two more chapters with the destruction of Babylon. It's going to be expanded upon. Verse 17 talks about the actual destruction. And then verse 18 talks about how the lost lament the loss of Babylon because they love Babylon. Babylon meets their sensual needs. Babylon is wealth and lust and, and all of the things that uh, really make up this world system, power, gain, 
in money, all these things. You know, Babylon makes up all of those things. And of course, the lost are going to mourn that. They mourn their loss. And we've seen throughout the book of Revelation, they hide from God. Whenever God comes, they hide. You know, have the rocks fall on us. Have the mountains fall on us. We don't want to be seen by him. And they're continually opposing God. Uh, look at verse number 9 of chapter 16. Verse number 9. And this is why. Uh, they were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God, who had power over these plagues. And they did not repent and give him glory. That's what lost men do in the face of um, torments and turmoil and the destruction of the things they love. And then you can do verse 11. And cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. And so that's a little bit of a, a review there. And uh, I think that's all the review I'll do on that. I'm not going to give you a review on chapter 17. Chapter 17 just gives further insight from a perspective of the destruction of Babylon. We already saw it. It, it happened with the great earthquake and um, all these other things taking place. And uh, we've seen the, the armies assembling themselves together for the ba great battle of Armageddon. That's where Babylon will really be destroyed, is in the battle of Armageddon. And then verse 18 is the lament of those that love Babylon for her loss. Um, in fact, look at uh, chapter 18, verse 20. There's a real important verse here. Um, all the lament, all the way down, alas, verse 19, alas for the great city, who, for where all who had ships grew rich by her wealth, for in a single hour she'd been laid waste. There's the lament of the lost over of this world system being destroyed. Rejoice over her, O heavens, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. And so there's the call for rejoicing. And we find the rejoicing in the next chapter. Verse nine, uh, chapter 19. Rejoicing in heaven. Now I'm going fast, but I'm doing it on purpose. I'm trying instead of just getting us to, you know, focus in on certain things, I'm trying to get us to see the, the broad picture here. So without reading it, verses 1 through 8, is praise to God for the destruction of Babylon. Think of, uh, Roman, think of Revelation chapter 4. Think of Revelation chapter 5. Those are around the throne. But this is the culmination of it. Uh, those under the altar had cried out, How long, O Lord, before you avenge our blood on our enemies? There it is. Rejoice. Because that's what's happening right here in, in chapter 19. And then in, in verses... Um, uh, we have the marriage supper of the Lamb that takes place. Um, verse 7, verse 8, 9 and 10. I'm not going to read it, but this is the entrance of the believers into the eternal state, the bride of Christ, the church. And that will be more fully developed for us in chapters 21 and 22. And that's what the marriage supper of the Lamb is. So you can't read these chapters in chronology. You have to remember, you're talking about God's enemies or God's people. So first of all, find out who we're talking about. And there's only two classes, God's enemies or God's people. And then realize that the coming of Christ is the great dividing line. Okay? For us, it's the greatest thing. We either go to him by our death or he comes for us in our life. 
That's the greatest thing. That's a wonderful thing. We're glad. That's the blessed hope. It is not the blessed hope for the lost. Christ comes and it's over. It's not like they got seven years to wait before they're judged. Christ comes and they're judged. And there it is. And so we see this, this view from different standpoints. So, you know, we've gotten, we've come now to Revelation 19.11. I'm going to read and, and make brief comments all the way from 19.11 to the end of chapter 20, verse 15. Okay. And uh, I'll, I'll be, this is where I'll be saying things. I, I've already, I believe, uh, for those of you that have been here, uh, and you can hear it on the internet if you want to, already really dealt with all these things already. So I'm, I wasn't trying to prove them right now. We're going to go from 1911 to 2015 and take a deep dive there beginning next week. But let's do the broad overview now. What I want you to do is uh, put yourself in the place of a first century Christian that knows the Old Testament, you know, um, and knows the book of Revelation because now he's hearing it for the first time. So what's he going to think? We've, we've got all these muddled ideas. This is the problem. So we come to Revelation with all kinds of ideas. Uh, and it's not always really helpful. And we're trying to figure it out. We say it can't be figured out. It's impossible. Well, what about those poor first century guys? How are they going to figure it out? Well, they actually had an advantage over us. They didn't have all the muddling to deal with. So that's what I'm trying to do right now is trying to say, okay, let's just wipe away all of our preconceived ideas. Uh, you should never change your doctrine until you're convinced. But just for tonight, let's throw away our preconceived ideas and take a look at the scriptures and what we've already seen in Revelation and what we will see from the Old Testament, and we know a lot of the Old Testament already. As we do that, we'd say, okay, is this understandable at all for a first century Christian? If you think uh, the, the scorpions with power in their tails are helicopters shooting out stingray with missiles, um, that's not going to be understandable. <laughs> okay, that makes no sense. And it's not literal either, if you want to take it literally. And that certainly isn't literal. But, um, you know, as we go here, let's let the Scripture speak. So the keys to understanding here, I believe, are going to be that Revelation is cyclical, not chronological. And just because something is mentioned earlier, do understand it will probably be mentioned again and again and again. And every time it's mentioned, something different is going to be said about it. And then let's remember that these are visions. Okay. This is just like Old Testament apocalyptic literature. This is New Testament apocalyptic literature. These are visions. And each vision usually introduces something from a different perspective or builds on something that's already been mentioned. And then one more thing. And this is just a caution. No one knows perfectly with exacting detail how everything's going to finally take place. So we must maintain humility and realize that every theory has its problems. And one of the things I've noticed, um, you know, good men, good men, don't I always agree. There's, there's broad categories where, of agreement, but, but good men have different perspectives on these things, even if they're in the same camp. We haven't even talked about camps right now, but, but be they amillennial or, or premillennial or postmillennial, um, 
the actual details are not always the same uh, between the good men. So let me read for you Armageddon, uh, which is actually, we've, we've dealt with it already a little bit. We're going to deal with it in greater detail. But starting verse 11, I'll just read to the end of the chapter. So let's look at it that way. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. Wouldn't that be the second coming? You certainly would think it would be. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. In righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. Now we're back into Revelation chapter 1. And on his head are many diadems. Why? Because he's king of kings. And there's a name written that no one knows but himself. Again, we're in chapter 1 again. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Now we're in Isaiah. And the name by which he's called is the Word of God. Now we're in John 1. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And this, of course, is coming with all the armies of his saints. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, obviously figurative. And he'll rule them with a rod of iron, some too. He'll tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty, Isaiah. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So we've seen many Old Testament allusions, and I just mentioned a few of them off the top of my head without even giving you chapter and verse. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice. He called to all the birds that fly overhead, Come gather for the great supper of God. We already have heard about the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is the marriage supper that you're the main course. Okay, It's the lost, not the Christian. Marriage supper of the Lamb is a great thing. That's celebration. This is a horrible thing. The birds are gathering for the carcasses. To eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. The flesh of all men. Wait a minute. You know? And I've read some opposing viewpoints on that. I said, well, no, no, no. It doesn't all... Interestingly, these are not Calvinists to say this either. They say, all doesn't mean all here. It's talking about all the armies. It's not talking about all the people. Well, I'm, I'm going to take it literally, okay? <laughs> and, and um, you know, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great, that seems to be pretty all-encompassing to me. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was eat, right, sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in his presence had done signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. So there's the battle of Armageddon. And you know what? It's not the last time we're going to see it. It's going to come one more time. We've already seen it. We've seen it at least twice so far. Chapter 14, chapter 16, and here it is again. And we've seen the second coming. There's two aspects to the second coming. You know, for the saved and for the lost. Now, with that being said and done, let's look at the same material from a different aspect. 
to 1,000 years. Considered the most difficult chapter in the Bible. Okay? And rightfully so. It's certainly been probably the most controversial amongst true believers. Chapter 20. Just read the first three verses. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon. We know the, we already know who the dragon is, but he can tell us again. The ancient serpent, he was in Eden, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Okay. Now, with all that being said and done, we've heard of Armageddon and the destruction of the lost, which is also prophesied in this book earlier, and in the Old Testament. We have it in detail. The beast, false prophet, they're in their pit, and now the dragon called the ancient serpent, taking us back to Eden, the devil and Satan. We're not left to wonder who it is. And we remember this is a vision, and it has to be a vision for the simple fact that, that Satan is a spiritual being, and um, you know he's actually being bound by a great chain. And uh, that sounds very literal, but it actually tells us what he's, what he's chained for. Um, threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him. And here's the chaining, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he has to be released for a while. So there, we'll be examining a couple of ways to look at this. But let me tell you one that you maybe never heard of. Okay, this is one that you may have never considered. Because when we see a thousand years, we're going, oh, yeah, that's a literal thousand years. Well, it, it, it obviously been a lot longer than a thousand years already, you know. So then you have to become a futurist and say, well, this is a future thousand years. Uh, this is going to be something that happens in the future. But a thousand years is a long time, right? It is. I think we'd all agree a thousand years is a long time. Not to the Lord, to a thousand to the Lord, a thousand years is his day. But to us, a thousand years is a long time. Nobody has ever lived a thousand years. Methuselah didn't live a thousand years. He lived 969 years. So nobody's ever lived a thousand years. Okay, as a human without dying. It's a long time. Okay, so there's a long time that Satan is bound, that he can't deceive the nations. And then there's a short time. He has to be released for a little while. Instead of thinking about years, why don't we think, as Robert Godfrey says, of long and short. The Christian age is a long age. It goes on for a long time. It's been going on for a long time. The thousand years, if it represents Christianity since the time of Christ, if we go back into Revelation 12 and we see that, the, that Satan's going to roar against the church, okay, and he does, and he persecutes the church. And he kills members of the church. But he can only kill you. That's all he can do. That's all he can do is kill you. Okay. For a long time, the gospel goes around the world. And men and women and children are converted and believe. Okay. And Satan 
is restrained from being able to stop that from happening. But he does have a little while that he can work. Sometimes even killing Christians. You know, persecution and, and destruction and all these sorts of things take place. Think of it as long and short. I'm just asking you to do that tonight. We'll try to prove it a little bit differently next. But instead of thinking about it, well, when is this thousand years? And, and when did it start? And when did it, instead of thinking about it, think, okay, the Christian era, which we don't know how long it is. The Lord could come very quickly, or it could be another thousand years, or another five thousand years. Who knows how long this is going to go on? You know? We don't know. We should be ready for the coming of the Lord. But um, think of it as long and short. Um, our, our lives are short. Even if Satan kills us, it was in the providence of God, and our lives are short. You know? But um, Christianity goes on. The church doesn't die when you die. Jeannie died. The church goes on. Okay. We're all going to die if the Lord doesn't come. And guess what? The church is going to go on. Even if Sovereign Grace Baptist Church dies, Christianity is going to go on. It's going to keep on going. It's not going to end until the Lord ends it with his coming. Okay, that's verses 1 through 3. Just think of it that way. Then I saw thrones and seated on them, verse 4, to whom authority was given to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now, that's important, okay? There's a sense that Christians reign on earth with Christ today. But once a Christian dies, he now joins Revelation 4 and Revelation chapter 5 and joins those that are around the throne reign, ruling and reigning with Christ and giving God all the glory, giving God all the power. And this goes on for a long time. Continues for a long time. Okay. The rest of the dead, verse, verse 6, or verse 5, sorry, let me let me get my blown up words here so I can read them. Okay. The rest of the dead, verse 5, did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. That's an important marker. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. Wait a minute. We already saw people came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest, who are the rest of the dead? The rest of the dead are the lost. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. Are we talking about soul sleep? No. No, we're talking about death. We're talking about the Christian's death and the lost person's death. The Christian's death brings us life. The lost person's death brings them continual death in Sheol. And continual death, and continual death, continual death. In dying you shall die, and they die. And, re, and continual death, that's, that's horrible. Not as horrible as what's going to happen. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended, this long period of time. And then he talks about those that reigned with Christ for a thousand years. This is the first resurrection. 
And that is controversial between good men because it might be, it might be regeneration. When you're regenerated, now you'll never die. That's true. You never will die eternally once you've regenerated. But my opinion, and not everybody agrees, so you can disagree with this. My opinion is when it says, um, you know, blessed are, let me look at it here, sorry. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But there'll be priests of God and of Christ, and they'll reign with him for a thousand years. So there's a thousand years again. And uh, I really think that what God is telling us here is that our physical death is our life. That's the first resurrection. There'll be another resurrection when we're reunited with our bodies. But take Jeannie for an example, because she's very precious to me, and, and she just died this week, so I think about it. She died. Her body died. And she went to be with the Lord. And there's the first resurrection. There's another resurrection coming. It's going to be better. It's going to be better because it's going to be reuniting body and soul. Okay? But this is glorious. You know? So we can weep and we can cry and we can be sad when someone we care about dies. There's nothing wrong with that. But if they're a Christian and with, they're with the Lord, hey, I know it sounds trite, but it's not trite. They're better off than we are because their race is done. We're still running, you know, and we're heading to the finish line. You die, you hit the finish line, and you're with the Lord. To be absent from the bodies, be present with the Lord. And there are people in heaven that with, with the angels, uh, with God, you know, uh, in heaven, rejoicing and partaking in Revelation chapter 4 and Revelation chapter 5. So we remember that this is a vision, and so we see a lot of physical things happening here. But really, they're not physical things per se. It's, it's helping us to understand what's happening. So I think the, the former in verse 4 uh, as we go back to verse, well, you know, they reigned with, lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Are those in heaven right now who've come to life in the first resurrection and they attain this resurrection by dying, but it's not the resurrection of the body yet. Okay. And the rest of the dead are the lost who are in the place of the dead. They're conscious, but they certainly are not alive. You know, they're conscious, but they're not alive. You know, and the rich man of Lazarus is an example of that in, in the parable. Well, if, if it's a parable, and it most likely is, it's a parable that's telling us something about a truth. Okay. So, you know, and then verse number six that we've already looked at, you know, this is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection over such the second death has no power but they'll be priests of God and of Christ, and they'll reign with him for a thousand years. A long, long time. Okay, so that's the way I'm looking at it. Just giving you that overview. Try to prove those things later. Now we see the final picture, the defeat of Satan. 
We've already seen Babylon destroyed. We've seen the beast and the false prophet destroyed. Now we're going to see Satan destroyed. I posit to you, and we're going to see uh, the death of the death of all lost people in the lake of fire, their eternal death. And I posit to you, they all happen at the same time. Not this, this happened, then this happened, then this happened, then that happened. I posit to you, we're looking at the same incident that takes place at the coming of Christ, and then all these things immediately take place. Chapter 7. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison, and I'll come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. We'll stop right there. We're going to have to understand what Gog and Magog is. I'm not going to talk about it tonight. It would take too long. But I think what we need to see here is there's two possibilities. Okay. There are two possibilities. Uh, the Many Amillennists believe in the little season. The little season is a place where God lifts his hand of restraint for a very short period of time, causing massive persecution and horrible things to take place on the earth. Or, and I kind of lean this way, to be honest with you, it's a little more spiritual than that. A little more spiritual than that. Now, the little season is a real possibility. It kind of looks like it, you know, but um, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about the two different views of what's happening here and the, release, the releasing of Satan for a short time. No matter what it is, his release is for a short time. The restraints on him are for a very short time. And there's a purpose for that. It was so that he would not deceive the nations. This is so that he can come out and deceive the nations, if you're looking at your Bible. He'll come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, that's everywhere, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. The number's like the sand of the sea, it's everybody that's lost. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven. At first it was a sword from the mouth of the Lord. But that was figurative. Fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them, not just them, but everyone he's deceived, was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were. And they'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. So now we've seen the destruction of Babylon. We've seen the destruction of the beast. We've seen the destruction of the false prophet. Anti-Christian government is gone. And really, that's not very personal, is it? Just talking about anti-personal government, that's kind of talking about a system. And the false prophet's not very personal either, because that's talking about a system. It's false religion. Think of, of Islam. Think of Mormonism. Think of uh, any of your Eastern religions. You know, they're, they're gone. They've been destroyed by the coming of Christ. So there is no more deception found in them. But now we get personal. Now it gets personal. And now it gets painful. And right now, those of us that know Christ cannot rejoice over this, really. Because we love our fellow man. And we're to be missionaries to our fellow man. And we're supposed to tell them about Christ, no matter what they believe. And they may believe in science, that, that's anti-God science that the world just evolved. They may believe in a false religion. Whatever it happens to be, 
Um, we're, we're to be missionaries to them. We're supposed to love their souls and care for them. Okay. But on the last day, when we see things the way they really are, and we understand the glory and beauty and greatness of God, and the horror and the ugliness and the badness of um, rebelling against him, somehow in a way that I can't do today, and I don't even think we should try, some way, we're going to understand and say it's good. This is right. This is what should happen. But we're not living in that day right now while we're in the flesh. Because we wouldn't be doing our mission. We wouldn't be doing what God's called us to do. Okay, but this is the final judgment. And here it is. This is the end. This sums it all up. This is, this is the all men, both free and slaves, small and great, that we read about in verse 19. And men, of course, being encompassing of, of women, too. I know you know that. Okay. Then I saw, verse 11, a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence the earth and sky fled away. How many times have we read that already in the book of Revelation? That the earth and sky. Sometimes it fly, flies away. Sometimes it's rolled up like a scroll. It, it's been throughout the book. Okay, first century guys. said, I've heard that before. <laughs> and I saw a great white throne and him who seated on it. From its presence earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. So there's books, and then there's one book. Okay. And the dead were judged by those things out of the books. Okay. Written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. We're talking basically about Sheol, right, here. And uh, they were judged, each of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Okay, there's the second death that we don't have to fear, those of us that know the Lord. We're going to die physically, but we don't have to fear the second death. And our first death is actually our first resurrection, in my belief. Okay. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. They had a physical death. They continued not living, not sleeping, but in a state of continual dying. And then they're thrown into the lake of fire. If you're not found in the book of life, you're judged by what we could call, the Bible didn't call it this, but you could call the book of works or the book of death. To be out of the book of life is to die. You will die. Absolutely. And this book of life will come up one more time. And this is where we'll close. Look at 2127. 2127, talking of the holy city, the new Jerusalem, the bride of Christ, the church, the church of all the ages, Old Testament, New Testament, all that believe in God, all that believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, all that are saved, all that uh, are trusting in him and him alone for salvation. 2127, but talking about the city, 
nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And I'll just throw one more thing in. When was the Lamb's book of life written? We, we really kind of, sometimes by our music, learn bad theology. There's a new name written down in glory. And go, okay, that, that's when I made my decision for Jesus. Truth of the matter is, we should know that the Lamb's book of life is written before the foundation of the world in eternity past. Okay. We don't know what's in it. God absolutely knows what's in it. Okay. Because he wrote it. It's figurative, isn't it? You know it's figurative. But that's the way we should be thinking. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we went over a lot of things tonight. And really, being Bereans, if people haven't studied these things, they shouldn't just say, hey, that's it. But we pray that we've hit on some themes that make sense, that we can look at. And now as we go back to explore deeper, and we know we could spend a year on this, but we won't. By God's grace, we won't. We could spend a year on it and go that deep. We've seen how big a book a man like Beale can write, a book so big that it's hard to carry it. So it can be done, but Lord, we pray that you just help us to have that first century mindset to believe that revelation is understandable, that if we've really, really studied hard through this book and got to this point, we should be able to read the book of Revelation and make some sense out of it and get a good general idea of what's going on in the world today and what is going to be the end of the world. So Lord, help us to do that. And then help us to see how the Old Testament and the Gospels uh, work their way through this very last book of the Bible, which tells us the most about the future. So we thank you for your love, grace, and mercy. Bless us now as we come to the Lord's table. May we feast on this foretaste of the eternal marriage supper of the Lamb, which isn't a literal supper at all in the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's so shall we ever be with the Lord. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.